You're listening to Nonprofit Confidential, episode number 59. Welcome back to Nonprofit Confidential. I'm your host, Sheila Nemeshikavi. For all of you who are new here, thanks so much for joining me. I am an educator, coach, and consultant on a mission to change how we run nonprofits. Through my company, Third Suite, I help nonprofit bosses bridge the head and the heart of their work. And I do this through trainings that offer a unique blend of instruction and coaching. It's not enough to learn the material. I also want to make sure that you're applying what you've learned, so that's where the coaching comes in. If you'd like more information about Third Suite, podcast episodes, more information about me, and free resources, head over to thirdsuite.com. If you're looking for free resources, you definitely want to join our free private Facebook group. This is a safe community for all of us to post questions, concerns, and get advice from your peers and consultants. You'll also find the link to our private group at our website, thirdsuite.com. So today I'm really excited because we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, innovation in the nonprofit sector. Nonprofits have a huge potential for impact right now. There's so much technology that could allow us to grow our programs and serve more people. I think we're also at the stage of growth of our field where we're finally looking at key metrics and asking ourselves, what do these results show? I really think we're coming upon an age of innovation in our sector. It's just around the corner. And in my opinion, the nonprofit sector is going to be the one that solves those pressing issues facing our communities. Things like homelessness, hunger, access to services, ensuring equal access to the arts, you name it. I really think these solutions are going to come out of our work. While the private for-profit sector seems poised for innovation, and for sure there is plenty of innovation in the private sector that nonprofits have utilized, at the end of the day, they're designed to focus on profit over all else. The innovation coming out of the private sector has to be linked to some kind of profit-making. Even the so-called social entrepreneurship model includes profit as a core piece of its model. While the government sector could impact the greatest number of people, this sector not only lacks adequate resources to implement innovative, large-scale endeavors, but it also struggles to unite people across the political spectrum, so innovation takes a backseat to political moves. When we look at the failings of these two sectors, it's clear that the nonprofit sector is perfectly positioned for innovation. Ideally, all three sectors would collaborate, but in my opinion, nonprofits need to lead that charge. So, if we're so perfectly positioned for innovation, why isn't there more in our field? Why do we continue to run the same programs, serve marginally more of our constituents, and make slow progress? Well, there's definitely a few factors that hamper innovation in the nonprofit field. First and foremost is the current funding model. 
So with grants and other funders that utilize the same model as grant makers, nonprofits are expected to have the answers before you ever test your ideas. When you apply for a grant, you lay out your entire program design, and it's really detailed and well thought out. But if you think about it, unless you've run the program before, all of these detailed plans are theoretical. But not only are you supposed to theorize about exactly how the program will run, you also need to theorize about the outcomes that can be expected. Some funders will actually penalize organizations if their actual program implementation differs from what they applied for, which to me is completely backwards. If you've never run a particular program before, how can you know exactly how it's going to work and what results you're going to get? Moreover, the current funding model supports a very long feedback loop. So when you apply for grants, you're typically applying for programs that are at least one year in length. That means by the time you have any data to evaluate and assess the success of your program, you're already a year in. To support innovation, funders would need to value short feedback loops trying multiple different avenues of program delivery to determine which one is the most effective and using data as you go along to direct your activity along with short feedback loops is what we need funders to start to value. As we know, control lies with whoever has the money to fund the program. So until and unless funders actively support innovation, the nonprofit sector will stagnate. In my opinion, this is the biggest barrier to innovation in our field. But as much as funders are an obstacle, there are others. For instance, sometimes the stakes are just too high, so organizations need to be really cautious. We can't just run new programs willy-nilly just to see what will happen because lives are in the balance. Innovation is often associated with fields like technology, where companies launch products fast and remain nimble to make changes as needed. But these products are rarely life-changing tools. More often, they're for entertainment or to make our lives easier. So if the first launch fails, it's okay. The teams can go back and try again or listen to consumer feedback and fix the issues. There's a lot of money at stake but not necessarily lives. In the nonprofit field, however, if you launch a program and there are issues, it could mean someone can't pay their rent or a family goes without food or someone doesn't get connected to the services they need. It's not just money on the line, it's people's well-being. Naturally, our field is risk-averse and wants as much research done as possible before launching a new initiative. Now, I completely agree with this. We have to do our due diligence in researching new programs and methodologies for solving the problems that our communities face. I think we need to strike a balance, though, between taking unnecessary risk just to innovate and being completely risk-averse. Either option doesn't serve our communities. And finally, another barrier that stands between nonprofits and innovation is that nonprofits technically serve two customers, donors and participants, and the needs and desires of each group don't necessarily coincide. For-profit companies serve just one customer, their shareholders, 
and everything they do is to maximize shareholder profit. So when companies innovate, their goal is really clear. It's laser focused on maximizing shareholder value. For nonprofits, particularly when the desires or needs of participants and donors don't align, it's unclear how to move forward. For instance, sometimes donors want to restrict their funding for particular uses, but what the donor wants to restrict the funding for isn't necessarily what your participants need. Maybe a donor wants to restrict their funds for toys for kids, but what the kids really need is school uniforms. So, Sometimes, even when donors support innovation, they support innovation for certain areas of the program and not others, and in that way can hinder an organization's ability to move forward. Okay, so we know that there are these barriers to innovation that nonprofits face, but what can we do about it? How can we move forward? So the Stanford Social Innovation Review published a really interesting article called The New Practice of Public Problem Solving. I'll go ahead and link to this in the show notes, although I believe it might be behind a paywall. But in this article, the authors laid out four components that help organizations not only mitigate problems, but actually eliminate them through innovation. The four elements that they mention, and this is actually just taken straight from the article, they are people-centered, so the organization puts people with needs and capabilities at the center of their programs and policies, experimental, start small, and scouts for local solutions, tests ideas and concepts, shifts to modular contracting, and experiments before national rollouts. Third, they are data-enabled. They leverage data, both big and small, to assess problems, monitor progress, and evaluate what works. And finally, they are designed to scale, assesses and plans for how to expand impact and scale. I think the authors of this article really hit the nail on the head with these four elements, and they actually more or less correspond with what others in the field indicate are necessary for innovation. And this isn't innovation just for innovation's sake. We're not trying to win one of those Shark Tank-style grant competitions. Rather, this is innovation with the goal of truly solving those big problems that we face in society. Things like poverty, injustice, homelessness, hunger. Okay, let's start with why it's important to be people-centered. I think this is the number one way that we can begin to solve problems. We need information about and from those we are trying to serve in order to help. By focusing on people, we begin to distance ourselves from the belief that people are the problem. When someone lacks housing or access to healthy food options, it's not because that person has some quality that causes their problem, right? So the problem won't be solved by supposedly fixing that person, even if the fix is giving them what they lack. When we look at a problem in isolation, the solution seems straightforward. For instance, if someone lacks housing, then the solution must be that they need a home. Looking at it through our little vacuum, this makes perfect sense. If someone lacks a home, give them a home, and then their problem is solved. If someone's hungry, give them food, and their problem is solved. 
However, when you actually include those you are serving in the process of coming up with solutions, it widens the lens of the problem. So homelessness goes from being a straightforward problem of lack of housing to a very complex issue with systemic causes. In fact, in some cases, providing a house actually isn't the most effective solution. If someone can't get to their place of employment because they lack transportation, and so they can't afford their rent, so thus they don't have housing, then giving them a house doesn't solve their problem. Instead, now they have a house that they can't pay rent on because they lack the transportation they need to get to work. So what looked like a housing problem is actually a transportation problem, right? If you can help them arrange transportation to their work, they can afford to pay rent, and they may not need you to provide their housing. The problem is that nonprofits tend to hone in on one problem and lack the resources or the tools to solve any other problem. An organization serving people experiencing homelessness may have a participant enter their program because they don't have a home. But upon speaking with this person, your organization may recognize that even though this individual doesn't have a place to sleep at night, the real cause of this problem is transportation. Unfortunately, this nonprofit is only equipped to solve housing problems. So now what? Either they try to refer this person to another organization that can get them with transportation, or they just enter them into their programs anyway to try to do whatever they can to help, even if it's not the most effective intervention. With a person-centered focus, ideally, the housing nonprofit could collaborate with other organizations to ensure that the needs of this individual are met. That means ensuring they have adequate transportation, which allows them to keep their job and pay rent. So when we come at problems from a people-centered point of view, the unique needs of the person always take center stage we begin to see those we serve as critical partners in solving complex issues. So another important piece of solving complex issues is experimentation. In kind of a contradictory way, while we do need to think really big to solve complex issues, we need to start small and collect frequent feedback. I mentioned that one of the issues preventing nonprofits from innovating is the fact that we need to run year-long problems in order to apply for funding. We need to lay out every detail of our program design from start to finish just to apply for a grant. And we need to explain what the results will be before we ever run the program. But how do you know what works and what doesn't until you've gone out and done it? The whole process is kind of backwards, but it also spreads out collecting feedback over a very long period of time, most often an an entire year. Moreover, there doesn't seem to be a way for nonprofits to collaborate and openly share the results of their experimentation. For instance, if a housing organization in California applies for a grant and tries out a new intervention that they determine does not work for X, Y, and Z reasons, there's seemingly no way for them to get this information out to other housing nonprofits. What's preventing an organization in, say, New York from running the exact same failed program? If they don't hear about the results in California, they could have the same idea, run with it, and also fail. 
In an ideal world, nonprofits would be able to run experimental programs in an iterative fashion and share their results with the community. With an iterative process, as soon as the nonprofit recognizes that their intervention isn't having the intended result, they could change their methodology and try again. Essentially, this decreases the time for the feedback loop. Rather than waiting until the end of the program year, the program results are constantly evaluated. Moreover, similar to a scientific paper that publishes a discussion of the methods they attempted and the results, nonprofits could share their results with other organizations as well. This allows for coordinated experimentation across nonprofits, which is particularly important when we consider limited resources such as funding and time. In this ideal world, a nonprofit in California could receive funding to experiment with several methods, and another in New York could experiment with different methods. Together, they could use the same amount of resources to try out several interventions and share the results. So, if one of these nonprofits finds an intervention that works, they can share that with all of the organizations and speed up the rate at which we are able to solve these complex problems. If we are going to engage in this type of iterative experimentation, though, we need to be able to use data to measure the scope of the problem and to determine which experiments are working or are not working. The way that nonprofits currently use data is essentially just as hindsight information. And it, in many ways, this issue goes back to the way that programs are funded, right? We apply for a grant with a whole plan laid out, and we run this program for a year. And only once that grant period is over do we look back on the data and determine whether the program worked or didn't. Jennifer Polka, the director of Code for America, aptly describes the situation. She says, It's like asking a pilot to fly a transcontinental flight with only after-the-fact, unreliable estimates of her airspeed, heading, and altitude, instead of the panel of instruments with constantly updated data and tested checklists to reduce accidents and errors that modern pilots rely on. I think that while nonprofits are getting much better at collecting data, we're still not clear on how to actually use the data to drive decision-making and problem-solving. Again, I know I keep harping on this, but part of the problem is that we are rewarded for hindsight evaluation. Even if you turn in a mid-year report to your funders, these reports tend to focus on activities and outputs as opposed to outcomes and impact, because the implication is that you can't measure impact until the program year is done. But what if we changed our view of data from something that provides hindsight analysis to using data to predict outcomes? I think that would change the type of information we seek and would facilitate innovation. For instance, the founder and CEO of the Crisis Text Line hopes to use data to improve their counseling. Their work on using data to make predictions would, quote, allow counselors to determine with a high degree of accuracy whether a texter from a particular area writing in a particular time using particular words was, say, high on methamphetamine or the victim of sex trafficking. 
How amazing would that be if we could use the information that we collect, not just to report on activity and then have it just sit in our database, but what if that information could hold the key to solving future problems? I think that's the opportunity that we have in the nonprofit sector. We have the opportunity to leverage the data that we all collect and put it to good use. And based on this data, once we know what works on a small scale, we could then figure out how to scale the programs up. This is undoubtedly the most complicated part of this whole process. I think that nonprofits do a really good job of figuring out how to serve their community. For instance, if your service area is your county, you can pretty much figure out what works for your county. But how do you take that information and apply it to the state or to the country or even globally? That's much more complicated, but that's where the weaknesses of programs are tested, right? Because we can still offer one-to-one services when we're only serving a small region. The flaws of our program design are compensated for by the direct service model, but that also means that you're limited to the number of people you can serve. And there's a linear relationship between resources and impact. With more funding, you can hire more people who can serve more people. So how do you increase your impact? You increase your funding. But if you now want to take this model and scale it, the amount of funding you would need to run that program on a national or a global scale would be completely unrealistic. So this is why innovation is so important. We exist in a world of limited resources, so it takes experimentation and creativity to figure out how to solve these huge complex problems with limited resources. I think this is where the opportunity for collaboration comes in. Nonprofits operating at a local level can come up with creative ideas, test them out in a pilot project, collect and analyze the data. These organizations can figure out what worked at the small scale, and then by collaborating with the private and government sectors, these successful pilots can then be applied at a much larger scale. Essentially, nonprofits become these little testing grounds for innovation, and once the solution has been determined, these organizations can take the information to the government and to private companies so that there's wider benefit. I think if we look at problem solving and pilot programs as programs that would eventually be scaled up to serve hundreds of thousands of people, instead of just focusing on our tiny service area, we would approach problem solving differently. The one-to-one service model would likely not be considered as a solution as often as it is now. So of these four elements, I think the place that every nonprofit can start is with creating a people-centered philosophy. Get your participants involved with your organization and make sure their feedback is truly given the weight that it deserves. In technology, they often talk about the end user and soliciting the feedback of users to determine if and how they would use a particular product as well as the ease of use. I think nonprofits would benefit enormously from this simple act if we integrated this kind of participant feedback into our program design. After all, interventions are only effective when we can get those we are trying to serve to participate. So 
this is a great starting place for all nonprofits to begin to tackle innovation within their organization. Okay, so I know I covered a lot of ground here today. For more information and notes from this episode, please visit thirdsuite.com forward slash 59. As always, if you have questions, comments, or feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Please join our free private Facebook group and post your thoughts over there. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'll talk to you soon.